0: Let's open in prayer. Yahweh, we just come before you tonight um, in submission and in reverence before you as an amazing, awesome God. And we just pray for your guidance, your insight into your word. Help us process the information. I just pray that the word of God would be encouraging where we need it tonight in our lives as we suffer and struggle and go through trials. um, I would pray that it would remind us of who you are, what you're capable of being in our life, and the um, awesome pleasure and blessings of submitting to you, even when we do not understand, because we know that you're good. But I also pray that it would be convicting and um, to us where we need it. Um, Even though it's uncomfortable, And it's not fun to face our own faults and our own sins. It is necessary in order to become more like you so we can experience more of you and your blessings. And I pray that you just continue to guide us towards you and towards each other and that we would be submissive to the Holy Spirit and that he would speak to us tonight. I thank you that you loved us enough, that you revealed yourself to us in your Son that you died on the cross for us, and that you chose to reveal yourself through your word, which is more than any other religion or philosophy has ever offered humanity. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 9, verse 15. We left off last week with the arrangement of the sanctuary. Um, He began this section with basically laying out the sanctuary and talking about the holy place and then the holy of holies. And the idea is that this was just a tent, and these were just articles of gold and bronze, with just a box and fire in the holy place. And the high priest, and only the high priest, was able to enter into the holy of holies, and only one time a year, and only with the blood of an animal, and only for a short, brief moment. And that was it. And so, under the law, that was the only access that you had to God. One man, one time of year, to a small room and a pillar of fire. But now through Christ, because He is more perfect and eternal than any external ritual could ever be and any animal could ever be, He has gained us access to the heavenly sanctuary for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ for all eternity. And that is much better. And where the tabernacle was necessary and good in order to paint who Christ was, it was only external and therefore could only cover our sins externally for a time. Where Christ can cover our sins internally and cleanse our conscience, 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 as the author says, for all eternity. So that Christ is our perfecter. He is the one who makes us perfect in a way that no other being and no other thing of God can. And so that brings us to chapter 9, verse 15. And so He, Christ, is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance He has promised since He died to set them free from the violations committed under the first covenant. For where there is a will, the death of the one who made it must be proven. For it will takes effect only at death, since it carries no force while the one who made it is alive. So even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when Moses had spoken every command to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet and wool and hypsis, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you to keep. In both the tabernacle and all the utensils of worship he likewise sprinkled with blood. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So it was necessary for the sketches of the things in the heaven to be pur- purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves required better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, the, the representation of the true sanctuary." But into heaven itself, he appears now in God's presence for us, and he did not enter to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the sanctuary year after year with a blood that is not his own, for then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared once and for all at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by his sacrifice. And just as the people are appointed to die once and then to face judgment, so also after Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. Therefore, over and over and over again, the author keeps repeating this. He is the mediator of a better covenant. And once again, he's doing this for... Probably many, many, many reasons, but there's two that stick out to me. One is that we're talking about people who have pretty much lived their life under the law, their entire life. We're talking about Jews that have ingrained in their head. We're talking about Jews that their history is that they went into exile because they did not obey the law. And so now they've decided if we're, we're going to do one thing right, that's obey the law. And now the author comes along and says, oh, by the way, you're not under the law. That's going to really be confusing. It's kind of like when God says there's only one God, and Jesus comes along and says, oh, and I'm God too. So then these are hard things for them to grasp. I mean, they're hard things for us to grasp. And we didn't even grow up with that tradition. The second reason is we're really dumb and we need to hear it over and over again. And so he's just constantly reminding this. And the cool thing about this is every time he mentions it, it's synonymous. He's not repeating himself word for word every single time. He comes at it from a different angle comes at it from the blood angle the sacrifice angle the justice angle the tabernacle angle he the and now we're going to talk about the will angle and he just keeps coming in at these different angles so hopefully eventually you'll get the idea we're no longer under the law because that was a weak and useless covenant compared to what christ is offering so he is the mediator a mediator is somebody who goes in between god and humans i think i've already mentioned this but i doesn't hurt to repeat it again so it means that you bring the will of god to the people you help them understand who god is you help them draw closer to god and so it's a two-way street you bring god closer to the people by teaching god revealing his righteous standards and dealing out the mercy and the faithfulness of god when necessary But it also means that you bring the people towards God, which means that you're the one responsible for bringing the sacrifices to God. You're the ones who bring the repentive and confessing hearts to the people. And so this is the idea. He is the mediator. He is a better mediator because he is God himself. And so what better person to bring God to you than God himself, who then indwells you? Likewise, what better person to bring you towards God because he is the perfect sacrifice who lives inside of you. And so you literally become the the focal point or the pivot or the nexus of this relationship between you and God. No longer is there a middleman because technically Christ is our middleman, but at the same time he's in us. And so therefore he is a part of us and therefore we're a part of God in that sense. And so He is a mediator of a better covenant, so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance He has promised, since He died to set them free from the violations committed under the first covenant, for where there is a will. Now, I keep mentioning this verse, Romans 3.25. And this is one of those verses, like, I've read Romans multiple times, but somehow I missed this verse over and over and over again. And I kind of came across it this year. And it just blew me away. and It's one of those things where like it's always there and I always process it. But I hadn't learned enough about the Bible for it to really stick out and be meaningful to me. But I just think this is such a cool passage. Because in Romans 3.25 it says, God publicly displayed Him at His death at the mercy seat, accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because God in His forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. And that's the idea. He he had passed over all those sins in the First Testament. He did not judge them like he was supposed to as a righteous, just God. Which is repeated here in verse 15. Since he died to set them free from the violations committed under the First Covenant, they were still under that judgment. The judgment was still hanging over their head because the sword, so to speak, hadn't dropped on them yet. It deserved to drop on them. But God didn't allow it to drop. And I've mentioned this multiple times, is that God, therefore, by not allowing the sword to drop on them, is showing that he's not very just, which is not true. But that's something that if somebody could accuse God of. And that's exactly what Satan accuses God of multiple times. When he comes to Job before Satan, but the most famous one is Joshua. In the book of Zechariah, Joshua is the high priest, and he's the the next guy. Like they've been in exile for a long time, seventy years, and they don't have a high priest anymore. And Joshua can trace his bloodline all the way back to Aaron, not Joshua of the conquest, another Joshua. He can trace his bloodline back to the last high priest of Aaron that was serving. And basically Satan comes up to him and says he has no right to be a priest because he's a sinner. And the only way you can be a mediator is if you're not a sinner. And God basically reclothes him in white and says his sins are forgiven. And he has the right to be a high priest. And Satan kind of disappears from there. But the reality is God really kind of had no right to do that. Because he could not really technically declare him not sinful anymore because there was no sacrifice for his sins. And so this is what God keeps doing over and over and over again. If there is if the only sacrifice that can truly perfect you is Jesus, then how can he declare Abraham and Enoch and David and Samuel righteous when that sacrifice hasn't come yet? So he keeps passing over their sins. He keeps passing over the judgment. That's the whole point of the Passover Lamb, is that this lamb is a temporary for lack of a better word and not being blasphemous, keep God happy for a while until something better can happen. And so now through Christ, all those years that Satan could have justly said, you're not righteous, you're not just, you're not punishing sin, now God demonstrates His justice. Because now He pours out all His wrath and He allows the sword to drop on Jesus. And Jesus takes the sword, so to speak, for Joshua and Abraham, and Enoch, and David, and Samuel. And now the justice of God is met. And this is what Romans talks about, is expiation and propitiation. The idea that God's wrath is satisfied, that He is now appeased, and now there's no longer need for Him to have His wrath poured out against us. But at the same time, the reason that God didn't allow us to be punished over and over again is because He loves us. So he was demonstrating grace. But grace can't truly be demonstrated unless there's justice, unless something costs somebody. And so now it's costing God His Son, which now He can justly allow us to live. And so the cool thing about the cross is it kills two birds with one stone because God's justice is satisfied because now sin has finally been punished. And two, grace can now justly and truly be freely poured out on all of us without anybody accusing God of being unjust for allowing us to live. And that's the point. That's why we have a better mediator. Because in the First Testament, one cannot really truly experience just grace until one can truly take the judgment of God and truly still deliver life to everybody. Because an animal sacrifice cannot do that. Because the animal dies and it's dead. It doesn't conquer the grave. A human dies for his sins, and he's dead. He can't conquer the grave. And so this is the why we have a better mediator. Because Christ is able to take the death that never was truly dealt on in humans, but at the same time conquer the grave and give us true grace to allow us to come into his presence. Does that kind of make sense? Because I know that's a big concept. I don't think we talk about that a lot in the church. So that, were they truly forgiven or they were just the punishment was delayed. They, it was delayed in some ways they were forgiven because God has overlooked their sins but this is but in some ways they're not truly eternally forgiven for two reasons one, Jeremiah 31 which we talked about in chapter 8 said in th- when that new covenant comes, then I will forg- remember your sins no more And you will truly be forgiven. So at the same time, no one could ever have the Holy Spirit dwell them in the First Testament because they're they're still sinners. You cannot have God enter the presence of sin. Therefore, the Holy Spirit can't indwell a First Testament believer because their sins really truly haven't been dealt with. And three, none of them were able to enter heaven. Because you cannot get to heaven. Jesus makes it very clear, only the righteous go to heaven, period. And all the Jews' response is like, oh my gosh, then forget us. Because they knew that nobody was righteous. So they're like, what hope is there for us? And that's the point. Only righteous people go to heaven. The only sacrifice that can make you righteous is Christ. That's why you're able to go to heaven. So if Christ hasn't died yet, no one can go to heaven in the First Testament. And so, no, they were not truly forgiven. They were forgiven in the sense that when they died, their faith had demonstrated that they loved and followed God. And therefore, when they died in their faith, even though their sins had not been paid for, that faith allowed Christ's death to pay for their sins retroactive, so to speak. Does that make sense? It's kind of like salvation was put on layaway. Okay, you had it, but you didn 't quite have it yet because the person who was coming to pay for it hasn 't arrived yet okay, and that 's that 's the idea now and I know that that's these are big concepts because we 're so used to being a part of the New Testament church, and for us all we 've ever known from since we've been born is that the Christ has died, our sins are forgiven, the minute you believe and accept you are in. The Holy Spirit comes into you and all that kind of stuff. We're not used to growing up in a world pre-Christ and and understanding that concept. And so we don't hear that language at all. And we don't need to hear that language because that's not the message for us. We're post-cross. And so that's why we need to understand how awesome it is that we live in this day and age. Because now, this is why Jesus could literally go to the thief on the cross and say, today you will be with me in paradise. Because he, no one could have ever heard that before the crucifixion. All the people who died the day before Jesus died on the cross did not go to heaven on that day. And that is the incredible promise and how significant that weight of that comment of what Jesus is saying, is that and that's why the veil was ripped, ripped open in the tabernacle or the temple at the exact moment he died. We're talking about a cosmic event that no Jew had ever experienced. That's why Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes on and dwells in them. And on everybody, rich and free and poor and not free. Everybody got it. And so we're talking about your sins are finally forgiven for the first time ever. The Holy Spirit can actually indwell you and not come on top of you. And it comes for everybody. Heaven is now open. Today, paradise is open. You're in, your grace is truly legitimate now. I mean, all these doors start opening to everybody that they had never experienced before. And that's why the author's saying that under the law, all we could expect was wrath. That's all you could expect. But through Christ we now have life. Good question. So when Jesus talked talk the parable about Lazarus and Abraham, where was where was Abraham at that point? Good question. The best that we can figure this out, and I mean as in like all scholars. Now there's always like people in there and people over there and that kind of but the general consist, consensus is this idea was called Hades. Um, Hell and Hades are portrayed as two different things. And Hades was just... Well, let's go to the Hebrew. Hebrew is the word Sheol. And Sheol is just basically the grave. And the idea is that the grave was divided into two halves. And one half was Hades, where the people would go like the rich man, who had no faith in God whatsoever. So they went to a place where those who would never receive the grace of God because they had no faith in this life. The other one has been kind of nicknamed by the Jews. It's not, there's, I forget what passage, but there's kind of a passage in the Bible that hints towards it, but it's mostly a, a Jewish term called Abraham's bosom, And it's the idea that because Abraham is the true icon of a man who lived by faith and therefore was declared righteous, and he's the father of the people of faith. That's why it's called His place. And so that's a place where you would go there. Now, the hard thing is we don't know how consciously aware that they were. Once they died, they went to the grave. And when it says that they were gathered to their fathers, they meant that, literally. What they would do is they would lay your body out on a tomb, and the sun would rot bleach your bones and rot off the flesh and everything. And about a year later, they would gather up your bones... And they would stick your bones in an ossuary box about the size of your femur. Because that's the largest bone in your body. And they would put you and all your family members in one box. And so they meant that literally, you're gathered up with your fathers. And so you would go to the grave. And there's this idea that they would go into a soul sleep. So we don't know how conscious they were after death. They're not in heaven but they don't seem to be wandering around like these lost spirits, like Hollywood portrays ghosts in movies. They they're in this limbo state and they're not at rest. Um, we do know that when Samuel was lifted up, and that's a whole different quote. That's a weird passage, but basically, he is the witch of Endor is bringing Samuel up. And Samuel, first thing he says, is, "Why have you awakened me?" And the implication he's been sleeping. So there's this idea that they're just temporarily put into these two what's called soul sleep. And for them it could be thousands of years but like when you're dreaming and you're asleep it feels like it's only seconds. Now that's the best we could tell. So there's this idea where but there's also this idea in the parable that they're having some kind of a conscious torment. Some kind of a conscious awareness too. So that's the hard thing to be. So Second Peter mentions the idea, I think it's first or second Peter, that when Christ came, for the first time ever, the doors of heaven were opened up, and he ushered the saints up in heaven. And that's the idea where then those who had no faith went into the place of hell, and then those who had faith were ushered into heaven for the first time ever. And then there's going to be a second movement where then all the people in hell, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, will be thrown in the lake of fire, and then hell itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the best understanding that we have. Um, God does not spend a lot of time describing the afterlife. He is more interested in describing how to, to be in the right relationship with God. Now, that doesn't mean there's nothing wrong with trying to figure it all out and that kind of stuff, but at the same time. So does that help? That's That's the... Yeah, and I think I still do. I think everybody still does. That's probably the closest glimpse we're ever going to get of what's going on. And for the, for all we know, maybe that's completely wrong too. So, But there seems to be a lot of passages that point to that concept. Verse 16, "...for where there is a will, the death of the one who made it must be proven." For a will takes effect only at death, since it carries no force while the one who made it is alive. So even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. Now here's what's really interesting. He refers to the first covenant as a will. This is very interesting because nowhere else in the entire Bible is the first covenant ever referred to as a will, nor the second covenant. The idea of the covenant is bringing two parties together and a covenant that you're going to experience the blessings now. That's the whole point, is when I make a covenant with my wife, or I make a covenant with a business partner, or whatever, I'm experiencing those blessings now, where the concept of a will means I don't get the blessings until the person who makes the will dies. So, there's never this idea through the First Testament that specifically says that we should see the Mosaic Covenant as a will, and that you only get the benefits of the will, the covenant, when somebody dies. But that's exactly the language that the author begins to paint on. And so the reason he sets it up this way is he makes the point that, look, the first covenant was making promises. It was making promises that if you live a righteous life, you will have access to God. I mean, the Ten Commandments say that. If you obey God, you will have a long life in the land. Well, then Romans, Hebrews chapter 4 comes along and makes it very clear that the land that God was really truly talking about was heaven. That's the true rest. Because if Joshua did provide them rest in a physical land, but God keeps talking about another rest, so the other rest must be heaven. So that must be the true land. But nobody ever experienced that ultimate rest in the First Testament because no one was truly perfected under the law. So that's, that's the argument the author's been making for the last couple of chapters. If the law can't truly perfect you then can you really truly experience the full blessings of the law? No. So what do you do with the law then that promises these blessings, but you can't get under the law? And that's where he taps into the idea of the will. Therefore, it's like a will. And the only way you can get the promises of God is if the person who makes the will dies. But here's the problem. God can't die. And so what do you do with that? And thus Jesus Christ comes in the picture, who is God, so he dies, but he's human, therefore he can die. And so when Jesus dies, as the author of the first covenant, because he's God, he kills the first covenant, and now the blessings of the first covenant can go into action. And they're able to go into action, because he meets the requirements of the law. He perfectly and righteously obeys every requirement of the law. Therefore, He fulfills the law. And by faith, we are adopted into Him. Therefore, we inherit all the blessings of the law through Him. He's our big brother. And our big brother got the inheritance because he is the firstborn. And he passes that inheritance to us. Does that kind of make sense? So, But at the same time, every covenant is enacted with blood. So since his death brings an end to the first covenant, which allows the blessings to go in effect, the spilling of his blood makes a new covenant. And that's why we're now into this new covenant. So his blood actually kills two birds with one stone, so to speak. And so now we're ushering into this new covenant, but this new covenant is us inheriting all the blessings that the first covenant promised. But the first covenant couldn't give you those promises because no one had ever met the requirements of the first covenant. But now our big brother has. And now he stands in the midst of us, according to chapter 2 of Hebrews, and says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers and sisters. And that's why Paul says that we are seated on the right hand of God with and in christ because he's in us and we are in him john chapter 14 therefore we have access to all the blessings of the covenant even though we didn't do anything to meet the requirements of the the will technically our name is not in the will it's christ's name but we're in christ and therefore christ is in us does that kind of make sense So this is a direction he goes that no really anybody else in the First Testament goes that direction with the idea of the covenant. And even teaching kind of feels like, I don't know, whoever the author of Hebrews you feel like you're stretching a little bit. But then again, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it works. The death of the one who made it must be proven. And it was. The crucifixion kind of made that pretty clear. For the will takes effect, verse 17, only at the death, since it carries no force while the one who made it is alive. So even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when Moses had spoken every command to all the people according to law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and scarlet wool and the hypsis and sprinkled both the book itself and the people. So now he kind of makes this transition goes back to the first covenant. Now if you go to Exodus chapter 19 through 24, and specifically 24, is in 19, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he says, I'm your God, come before me. And then he goes up in the mountain, he brings Moses up, and he gives Moses instructions for how to build the altar, because that's the most important thing, then the Ten Commandments. And then he sends Moses down, and he says, make this covenant with them. Now in chapter 19, they're like, yes, yes, we'll all agree to this covenant. We want to be a part of the covenant. And then after they agree to it, then God gives them the Ten Commandments, and he gives them the altar. Then God comes down and says, "Now that you have the altar, and now that you have your requirements for the covenant, now it 's time to make you a part of the covenant, and every covenant requires blood, so they sacrifice like all these animals because there 's like two to three million people standing before the mountain in some ways that 's a lot, but the other ways if you 've ever been to washington d c in the mallway that 's that big open field that goes like the length of all those museums." you can get easily one million people in that spot. So, yeah, it's a lot of people, but it's not like we're talking about a huge, huge, like going on miles and miles and miles of people. So the altar represents God, and the people represent the people. So they sacrificed all these animals, and they took a hypsis branch, which is like an evergreen. They dipped it in the blood, and Moses took this branch and just, like, flicked it on all the people. Because they all had to be covered in the blood of the Lamb, of these animals, so that they could all be part of the covenant. And then he takes the hypsis and he smacks it across the altar so that God and the people are both covered in the blood. And then when they all say, yes, we agree, now they've entered into a covenant with God. And the idea is, just like what I mentioned with Abraham, where you cut the animals in half and you say, may be done to me what has happened to these animals if I violate the covenant which is important because now they're agreeing to be part of the covenant, but they're also agreeing that you can kill us, God, if we don't obey it. And like literally like 10 days later, they worship the golden calf, which is all the more reason why God can't be accused of being vindictive and mean for killing some of them, because they said you can, and that was part of the signature on the covenant, so to speak. And two, he had every right. The fact that he didn't kill them all is what's amazing, according to the covenant. And so the idea is that everything had to be cleansed. So they sprinkled the utensils, they sprinkled the altar of incense, they sprinkled the showbread, everything had to be covered in blood, because it's the only way anything could be cleansed, and nothing that's not cleansed can come into the presence of God. And so he uses that example and says, if that's true of physical, external things, then how much more is it true of your eternal soul? And the first covenant required blood, the second covenant's going to require blood. And so we are covered, Christ is covered with blood, so to speak, because it's His blood. But by the fact that He enters into us, we are covered with His blood. So in that sense, the altar, Him, and us are all cleansed with blood. But His blood cleanses internally as well. And so that's the connection He makes. So He uses this idea of the will... And the death of the one who makes the will in order to transition into why we need blood in order to be cleansed. Now, remember, the point is not blood. The point is that blood is the most physical example of life. You, you can't see life in a lot of ways. You can't see the air that people breathe. You can't see a heart beating. Back then, you couldn't. You can't see brain waves. You, any of the people moving around, That's not necessarily evidence, but when, you, when their blood is circulating, they're alive. When it's all gone, they're not. And so blood was the most physical, tangible symbol of life. And that's the idea. Life is required. That's the idea of the will. And so his righteous life covers us. And so he says this. Everything was sprinkled, verse 20. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you to keep. And so he quotes Exodus 24 by saying, this is the blood of the covenant you are required to keep. Now the blood of Christ's covenant, he keeps it. Because it's his righteous acts. Verse 21, In both the tabernacle and all the utensils of worship, he likewise sprinkled the blood. Indeed, according to law, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. And that's the idea. There can be no forgiveness without blood. So he's acknowledging that there was some forgiveness. And the forgiveness that they did receive was that they got to live. But at the same time, they didn't receive an eternal forgiveness that allowed them to live eternally because they weren't allowed to go into heaven yet. And that's what he's going to go to next.